Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you that with all of the creation, we cry out, joy has come to the world. God, you, you have come to unite all things together in your son, Jesus Christ. And so would you help us to see you clearly this morning so that we might worship you, so, so that we might follow you and trust you, put all of our hope, all of our cares, all of our burdens, all of our joys in Christ he is the one who can hold and sustain and contain it all. Lord, we come to you this morning by faith. Help us to hear and to see by your spirit this morning what you are saying to us, your church. We love you, God. We thank you for this Christmas season. What a joy it is to gather. Be with us now as we open your scriptures. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My sermon text this morning is Psalm 147. We said that responsibly. It's on page 492 of your pew bible if you don't have a bible with you i encourage you to open that we're going to go through that text now as you as you're opening there i want to begin by addressing an accusation an accusation that was leveled against me from this pulpit to my shame to my shame not a few days ago sam stood here and he rightly accused me of being a fanboy specifically of John Chrysostom and Blaise Pascal, but I am an Anglican priest. I have failed you, and more importantly, I have failed my patron saint, C.S. Lewis. I have failed him, so my Christmastide penance has been to read and to reread Lewis. So I've been, I've been reading Lewis, Lewis's letters this week, some of the letters that I've never read before. And in so many places, Lewis writes like me. He resonates with me. He puts, he puts things that I feel onto the page. But more often than not, as I read his letters, I feel like I'm reading letters from my brother. From my brother. And if you know Jason, you know what I'm talking about. I am a loud external man. And Lewis is a thoughtful internal man, like my brother. He's much like my brother. Lewis famously returned every letter that was sent to him. And so it was perhaps, it was perhaps unsurprising that he lamented the modern commercial racket, he calls it, of Christmas. And specifically, Christmas cards would fill up his inbox. And no, and I'm not talking about email. I'm talking about a real inbox. Every year, each card arrived. And as they came through the mail, he calls each one of them almost a blackmail. I love that. Almost a blackmail. The culmination of the lunatic condition of our culture that everyone lives by persuading everyone else to buy things. There you go. There's your internal, uh, thoughtful, maybe curmudgeonly C.S. Lewis. He wrote, I am knee deep in the hideous task of dealing with my Christmas mail. Wow. Wow. That, he, he got a lot more mail than I get, um, but I understand this. Who has not heard, he said in another place, the wail of despair and indeed of resentment when at the last moment, just as everyone hoped that the nuisance was over, the nuisance was finally over, just as everyone had hoped for one more year, the unwanted gift from some Someone we hardly remember flops unwelcome through the letterbox. 
Maybe that's where you're at this morning. <laughs> you're like, wow, um, I, I kind of was hoping Christmas was over. I kind of was hoping that we, we'd be done with this. We've been playing baby, it's cold outside since way before it was cold outside, many of us. We've spent all the money that we don't have, and we are tired, and maybe very tired of Christmas, but Lewis makes a distinction, and I hope to make that distinction this morning. There is the racket, and there is the feast. There is the racket of Christmas, and there is the feast. Finally, the last obligation is over, but not quite yet. We're not done yet. Like one final unwelcome Christmas card that comes through the letterbox I am the stubborn Anglican priest who says, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Come on. It's only the seventh day of Christmas, people. So our readings, if if you noticed this morning, you maybe didn't notice, they don't seem like Christmas readings at all. But these are the normal Christmas readings for every year on the first Sunday after Christmas. Our New Testament lesson every year is from Galatians. We heard this. It's about the completion of the law. That because of faith in Jesus, which leads us to, to our being adopted into Christ. This is the message from Galatians 3 and turning into chapter 4. And our reading from Isaiah is about a coronation or else a king coming to his throne in Jerusalem. But it also sounds like new creation language. It also sounds like a wedding announcement. So there's a coronation and sort of a wedding going on, and all of this is uh, new creation imagery. And all these strange-to-us Christmas readings are outdone by, outdone by, and they culminate with, every year, the gospel lesson from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, if you heard this, and right after our reading you hear the context a little bit more, John begins his gospel in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the word, the eternal word that created the world has come as a light in darkness. And that sounds a little bit more Christmassy to us, but there's new creation language there as well. Many are adopted, John says, not by birth, but by new birth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. These are kind of strange for us. They don't sound like Christmas texts. They don't sound like Christmas. But these texts represent perhaps the the pinnacle or else the peak of theological reflection. And this is, every year, the first Sunday of Christmas. So if you want to talk about putting Christ back into Christmas, that's what these readings are for. So again, I say, Merry Christmas. We need these texts. Merry Christmas. There you go. Oh, my goodness. It is not New Year's Eve, people. Come on. It's the seventh seventh day of Christmas. So I want to turn our attention, though, to not to any of those readings, but to our psalm this morning, specifically verses 12 through 20, which Curtis led us in this morning. Now, the Greek translation, so the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has, if you didn't know this, and I, didn't, I knew this, but I didn't know it specifically until I was studying this week, it has 151 psalms. In your Bible, you might open it up and see that there's 150 psalms. But the reason why there's 151 in the Greek translation is because of this psalm. 
this psalm is divided into two. And so if you're in an Eastern church this week, you would be reading Psalm 148. Psalm 148, or the second part, as we number them in our Bible, of Psalm 147. Each part, each part, each half begins with an imperative. Praise, praise in verse 1 and praise in verse 12. And then at the very end, we said that all together in verse 20, praise the Lord. Now these imperatives are joined together, and I think this is right. I think that Psalm 147 is a unity, and there's another imperative in the middle, which is sing, which is sing. Not just this psalm, the last five psalms are all about this imperative, which is praise, praise over and over again. The last five psalms are like an admonition over and over again. If you've forgotten the point of all the Psalms to this point, it's meant to lead us before the Lord in praise. Or as Spurgeon called this final movement of the Psalter, a cataract of praise. What does that old language sound like? What, does anybody know what? I didn't really remember what a cataract was until I looked it up. It's like a waterfall, a waterfall of praise that crashes all together into a sound like thunder. And the thunder in these five psalms for Spurgeon was hallelujah, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Psalm 147 and verse 1, right before the psalm that we read this morning, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. So it's not only an admonition to praise, but the psalm begins with praise of praise. Of, of praise itself. It's good, it's pleasant, it's fitting, it's good to sing. If our other readings are all about putting Christ back into Christmas, then maybe you could say that Psalm 147 is about putting, as I saw Derek Bonnet post this week, the Mass back in Christmas. The praise, the gathered worship of the people of God. Now, I, I really want to go on to a side note. I'm, I'm going to skip this part completely. Um, don't be scared of the language of Mass. It just means coming together to be sent out. We gather to worship, and we, we worship to be on mission. And our mission is worship, and worship is our mission. They all go together. This is Missa Est. This is the Mass. This is why we are here together, to worship, to praise the Lord. But I, I don't think... Not so fast. I don't think this is primarily about what we are coming to do. This psalm is not primarily about what we do. Psalm 147 isn't primarily about, I think, the exhortation to praise or to sing. It's not about what we do. This psalm is about the object of praise. As all psalms are, and, but very particularly in Psalm 147, human beings, as one theologian says, Turn up in the psalm about as often as the raven and the horse. People are not the point. You and I are not the point. We show up in this psalm as the subject of attention just as much as a bird or a horse. Again, you are not the point. Psalm 147 isn't about us, nor is it primarily about what we do. It's not even about our participation in the song. The thunder of the waterfall in this cataract of praise isn't the sound of people singing. It's the sound of 
two crashing together big theological categories. And I want to focus on those a little bit before we get into the psalm. These are, if, if you're an English person or you like to get into sort of English ways of speaking about this, these are properly theological categories, okay? What does properly mean? It means they're about God, theos. They are specifically about God. And so what are those two categories that are coming together in Psalm 147? There is the general and the particular sovereignty of God. So you see God's general sovereignty and his particular sovereignty crashing together like a cataract in this, in this, in this psalm. God's creative power and sovereignty over all of the world and specifically over all of the creation. And, so this is general, and his particular love or else his sovereign calling of Israel and Jerusalem. They're crashing together in this psalm. Here in verse 2 of Psalm 147, this particular emphasis of the psalmist. The Lord builds up who? Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And so this psalm begins with God's particular care for Jerusalem or else for his son, for Israel. He is healed. His son is healed. He binds up his son. What is broken, what has been put out of joint or broken, is being bound up so that it can heal straight again. This is how the psalmist begins. And as if in passing, the psalmist says that he counts the stars. The stars that he powerfully made and that he named one by one, his wisdom has no number. His understanding is beyond measure. You can't even count it. So you have this particular, this particular sovereignty of God for his son, and you have this general sovereignty of God coming together. The psalmist will go on in verse 8 to sing praise to God who rules over clouds and every raindrop and every blade of grass. Verse 9, he feeds every animal on earth. Verse 10, God is not impressed with the strength of horse, horses or the, th this, is, this is the language, and my wife might appreciate this, the thickness of the thighs of men. That's the language in the Hebrew. I, might, I may or may not have thick thighs. He, God doesn't care about that stuff. He doesn't care about strength of horses or how thick your thigh is, men. He pays more attention, the psalmist says, to a baby raven. To a baby raven, he hears an abandoned baby bird when they cry out for food and he feeds them. The general and the particular altogether. Jesus said to his disciples, and I think he had this psalm in mind, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And in Luke's gospel, he doesn't just say birds, he says, consider the ravens. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you 
than the birds, general, particular, coming together. Spurgeon says that this is, that greatness is occupied with little things. That's, what, that's, that's another way to say this whole psalm. Greatness, or else the greatness of God, is occupied with little things. And this psalm is occupied with greatness, with God, the one who cares for us. Therefore, praise God. That's the admonition. Therefore, because of all of this, praise God. Praise the one who did something never before seen in the history of the world. What do I mean by that? When nations, this is, this is really interesting. That I, I've not really thought about this clearly until this week. When nations are conquered by other nations, when their temples are burned to the ground, most often the conquered nation, the one who has been who has been conquered and taken away, who has been burned to the ground, they almost completely disappear from historical record. There's countless nations and peoples like this. Israel was conquered many times, but in the immediate context here in the psalmist's mind, conquered by Babylon. They were taken into exile, but God gathered the outcasts of Israel. He healed what was broken. And more than that, in verse 13, He strengthens the bars of your gates. Strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within the city. Verse 14, He makes peace. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. Praise the Lord. A once conquered nation has not vanished from the face of the earth. And this is remarkable. She has come back home, rebuilt her walls, the original walls, rebuilt her temple. This is cause for praise. This is what the psalmist is reflecting on. So imagine, imagine you were reading this psalm or you were singing this song in the synagogue and you were a first century Jew. I know all of us are Gentiles and it's hard to maybe imagine this, but we're singing this psalm and we have in mind that the people of Israel were called out of Egypt and a nation was formed. A kingdom was established, and the greatest temple in history, in the history of the world, was built. And then this nation quickly divides. And then, again, another nation, Babylon, conquers the kingdom. It burns this original temple to the ground. And then, again, God brings the nation back into the land. He builds a second temple. Another temple, almost as magnificent as the first. And I hope, day, hope someday go see the Western Wall, just a small fraction of this rebuilt temple that still stands in Jerusalem today. I hear it's magnificent, and it's only a fraction of the second temple. Imagine, though, that you're a first century Jew, and again, again, the nation is conquered, not, not this time by Egypt, not this time by Babylonians, but by Greeks and then Romans, and they desecrate the temple. Jerusalem is insecure. There is no peace within the borders of Zion. And the psalmist continues, he gives snow. God, the Father, he gives snow like wool. 
He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? So there's a lot coming together in this psalm. It's got general sovereignty of God, particular sovereignty of God. His particular salvation and election of his son, his people, and this nation. But there's a lot of things coming together. What kind of praise song is this? It doesn't feel like a Christmas song. In a few seasons, I can imagine being a first century Jewish hearer of this first proclamation. In a couple of generations of Israel, this praise song made sense. But now, but now, does it make sense? Snow covers the ground. The people are scattered, hurled down to the ground like hardened and fallen icicles. This is the imagery. Who can stand before his cold? That, that right there sounds a little bit more like the Christmas that you and I maybe experience. The sovereignty of God, both His general sovereignty and His particular call, His particular election of a particular people. In, in one moment, some seasons of life, it might sound like praise. It might sound like a joyful shout. And in the very next moment, in the very next season, it sounds like a cold wind. So what's, what's the answer? What is, what is the psalmist inviting us to do in particular when, when, we, when we talk about the general and particular of sovereignty of God coming together? And again, this is not about me. It's not about you. As Paul said to the Galatians in our reading, you could be a disconsolate Jew, someone who is dissatisfied with Roman rule. You could be a Jew or you could be like me. You could be like me, like most of us here, who are Gentiles, who God's particular grace was not in view here. It was not in view in this psalm, especially in its original context. So what, what are we invited to do? And I think this is one, and brilliantly, brilliantly, this is one final Christmas song for us. This is a song, particularly not about our singing, not about not about who's singing it or what it's inviting us to do or maybe even who we're invited to become. It's a song to remind us about God, particularly what He has done for us in the Gospel. So I invite you to look at this psalm with me one more time. And I'm going to follow a lot of the history of interpretation on this psalm as we go through it verse by verse. Look with me at verse 12 again. Pay attention to the lyrics of this song. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for He, verse 13, strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. Verse 14, He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. So praise God the Father. God the Father, He has rebuilt His kingdom. He has rebuilt His temple on the third day. He has blessed us with offspring. Offspring protected in the womb. He has given us peace 
in his place where he shows up to meet us. He feeds us, the psalmist says, with the finest of the wheat. With bread, he feeds us. Verse 15, he, the father, sends out his command, his word to the earth. His word runs swiftly. God the father sent his only son. Hear the gospel, the divine word to the earth to dwell among us and to run swiftly to the four corners of the earth full of grace and truth. Verse 16, he gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. Verse 17, he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them and melts them. You might think this is general, but in the history of the church, this is a particular sovereignty of God. Cold snow can melt. Even snow can be knit together and become warm like wool. Frost can be restored by repentance. This is the language. He's not talking about snow or else frost. He's talking about people and snow that has become hardened over time. Cold snow that it melts and then it freezes and it melts and it freezes over and over again and it drips down over and over again like a crystal of ice, like an icicle. It's hardened over time. The Father sent His Word, and this is the imagery, Jesus Christ to melt our hardness. Even snow that is, that is melted and trickled down and hardened over time, once hard as ice, cold as snow, He binds us together like wool with the ashes of repentance. And He has done this, and this is really interesting, He has filled us as we melt as our hard hearts are melted, He has filled us with the finest of wheat. He has filled us with bread, and as we feast, we melt and we become breadcrumbs. It's really, it's really interesting language. As, as your hard heart melts, you become crumbs. We are fed, in other words, by the bread and we become bread together. This is what the psalmist is inviting us into. Or else we could say, we eat his body and we become his body. Look at the second part of verse 18. He makes his wind blow and the, fathers, and the, and the waters flow. The Trinitarian picture of Psalm 147 is completed here. The Father sent the Spirit like a warm breeze blowing. At the proclamation of the Word, the Spirit blows, melting what was once hard and cold, and now it is like living water. Like living water that is being poured out, that flows out into the world. Verse 19 he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. And finally, in verse 20, he has not dealt thus with any other nation 
They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. The, the general and the particular come together here at the end with a particular point about a particular person. All of these promises, the declaration of the Father who is sovereign over the hard and the soft, for those who are cold as ice and so those who are being warmed up and start to flow out into the world, He sent His once-for-all Word to Jacob. To Jacob. In other words, Jesus... Jacob's only faithful son, he alone receives the inheritance. We Gentiles don't. We don't receive the inheritance. He receives the inheritance. There is salvation in no other word, in no other nation, in no other tribe, on no other mountain, in no other city, in no other temple, in no other name. This is a Christmas song. God's particular grace is Christ. It is Christ. His particular grace is Christ, and we participate in this grace in Him. The song of Christmas, the song of the gospel, is God. It is about God, and it is particularly about God in Christ. All of these particular promises, and this is really important for you and I to grasp this Christmas season, all of these particular promises are not for you. They're not for you, Gentile, but for Christ. They're not yours unless they are Christ first, and then we inherit them. They're not ours. And even if you were a Jew by birth, Paul says, Gentiles, Jews, slave, free, male or female, it is not yours by right. It is Christ's. And because we are in Christ, we receive His inheritance. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the song, or else as St. Augustine said, this is the totus Christus. This is all of Christ. Without Him, there is no salvation. We, Augustine reading this psalm, we are like orphaned Gentiles or else abandoned ravens crying for food. We're crying out for God, and He gives us Himself. He gives us bread, the finest of wheat. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. And I'm beginning to understand, John Piper says it in other places, a lot of different people in a lot of different places and a lot of different times say it in different ways, but he says it like this, the gospel is Christ. Christ is the good news. And he goes further, and he's, he's riffing on John Calvin here. Ferguson says, the gospel is Christ clothed with his gospel. I don't even know what to do with that, but it's all about Jesus. The gospel is Christ clothed with his gospel. Everything points to him and is satisfied in him, and because of him, it is ours. So when you're cold, when, when in the seventh day of Christmas feels like purgatory, maybe like C.S. Lewis a little bit, when you're hard, when you're when your snow, the life of you has been dripping and freezing and melting and back and forth and you don't even know what to do in response, 
Or else when you're brokenhearted, when you're wounded, when you're alone in exile, it's addressed to us in Christ. This is the song. This is the Christmas song. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. A feast. A feast has been set before us. And the feast is Christ. And we participate in Christ and we feast upon him the bread of heaven. You were and I was once a crystal of ice. Now I am melted like crumbs. And you can be melted like crumbs here this morning. So I invite you this Christmas, Merry Christmas, I invite you to praise the Lord in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.